Our message this morning is entitled, Our Schoolmaster. The first passage that we want to turn to today is found in the book of Galatians chapter 3. But we'll only be there for a moment as we hope to spend the majority of our time together today in the book of Matthew chapter 5. As we introduce our thoughts to you, I say up front that the message today is one that will either trouble a person or comfort a person greatly, depending on the person and their perspective. And I would imagine that if we listen to this with fresh ears, as though we've never heard this thought, the things that I want to share with you today, if we imagine as if these are the first time that we have heard this, that this is the first time we've ever heard this thought presented to us, it will both trouble us, especially at first, and then as the message comes to its conclusion, it's one that I believe will comfort us very much. I want to start today by catching your attention with a very simple question. Are you a righteous person? Phrased another way, that would be more, I suppose, American politically correct. Are you a good person? Are you a good person? I think if we ask that question, and in fact, there are videos and videos on the Internet of preachers asking that question in public. You could walk around in Big Spring Park downtown and just randomly walk up to people and begin the conversation. Do you believe that you're a good person? Most Americans believe themselves to be good people. If you walk up and you begin asking someone, just based upon the common theological notions of today, well, I've never killed anyone. Well, that's good. Praise God, you've never killed anyone. I've never robbed a bank, and I think in an average day I do more things that are good or neutral than I do things that are bad. So I guess if you were to put the good works on one side of the balance and the sinful things that I've done, of course sin is a concept that they'd say bad, they wouldn't say sin, then yeah, I, I guess I'm, a, I'm an overall good person. The average American, as long as they haven't been engaged in anything that's that heinous, would say that they themselves are, sure, a good person. Now, I'll say up front that the reason that we believe that is because we have our own standard as people of righteousness. We have our own standards of morality, and usually that standard is based upon the worst among us. You might say, well, you know, he's not the best in the world, but he's also not Adolf Hitler, and so I suppose he's an all right fellow. Talking to a, a dear loved one years and years ago, he had grown up among a very pharisaical, judgmental faction of Christianity and fallen away from active church attendance as a young man because I believe the pastor of the church that preached such a pharisaical idea was caught in an extramarital affair and scandalized himself and just sent this young person away. As an old man, we, he and I were discussing religion and salvation and God and Christ, and he said, well, I think I've done more good things than I've done bad things in my life, so I hope when I'm, when I'm judged at the end of this world, the Lord will you know, let me in and be merciful to me. We have this standard of righteousness that many of us think about in our own minds, and many times we judge it based upon what other people are doing. We'll look at someone who does very terrible things and we'll say, I'm better than them, so I must not be that bad. But what I want to do today is jar us with the notion that God's standard of what is good and what is righteous is not our own standard. 
And what that does is it calls us to arrive at a very troubling conclusion when we begin, by God's word, to examine our behavior with the realization that one sin is all it takes to separate a person from God for all eternity in the lake of fire. One single sin. Think about the Garden of Eden, how God creates a man and puts him literally in a paradise. It was perfect. There was no flaw in it. There was no pain in it. There was no sickness. There was no suffering. There was no death. But it was a place of complete joy and pleasure with one simple command. I have made this one particular tree. You will not eat of the fruit of it. And Adam, in his Covetousness partook of that tree. He ate of the fruit that God commanded him not to eat. He sinned. You might think, what's the big deal eating something you're not supposed to eat? And because of that one sin, because God said not to do it and Adam did it, he was driven from the presence of God forever, now deserving God's wrath for all of eternity. You and I have this scale we think about so often, and it's such a natural thing to do. I'm not doing bad at the moment, and I've never done the worst things that a man can do, and so because of that, I think I'm all right. And so we would answer so many times, yes, yes, I'm a good person. I've reflected a lot this week on the rich young ruler, and we won't turn there, but just to repeat the story to you and summarize it, a man comes to Jesus, a rich young ruler, and he's a very self-righteous man. He asked Jesus, good master, what thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And the problem begins immediately with his question because there's nothing that you do to inherit something. How do you inherit something? You inherit something when someone dies and leaves it to you in their will. Or by the course of the law of the land, you're entitled it because of the death of someone that you were related to. And Jesus asked him the question in response to that, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is, God. Now keep in mind that Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus isn't saying he's not good, but Jesus immediately goes to the heart of the issue with that man. He says, you know the law, you know the commandments, you know to do no murder, you know not to steal, you know not to bear false witness. And the man says, all these things have I kept from my, my youth. And Jesus tells him, one thing thou lackest, go sell all that thou hast and you'll have treasure in heaven. And the man went away sorrowful. You see, he was in violation of God's law and he didn't even know it because he was covetous. The disciples looked at that and confronted with the reality of a man who had kept the law of God his entire life being unworthy, they then asked the question when Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom, which we understand the kingdom is at hand. They began to ask, who then can be saved? And Jesus' reply to them is staggering. With men, it is impossible. If we had the notion as we approach God in worship today that we're here because it makes us look better in the sight of God, so judgment will be easier for us in the last day, understand with men salvation is impossible. Through my works, my actions, my decisions, salvation is an impossibility. The notions of the Pharisees in the first century were such that 
through their actions, through their adherence to the law, through their righteous works, they established and presented their righteousness to God and to the world. We're righteous, they would say, because we tithe, because we offer sacrifices, because we fast, because we keep the law. And you remember there was a man that Jesus speaks about in his ministry, a Pharisee that goes to the temple to pray, and he looks up and he's bragging to the Lord, praying within himself, Lord, I fast, I tithe, I keep the law. And there was a poor, simple publican there who, poor in spirit, smites his breast, and he says, Lord, have mercy unto me, a sinner. And of those two men, it was the publican who went down to his house justified, declared righteous in his conscience. Why? Because he understood, unlike the Pharisee, there's nothing that he could do to make himself look righteous or be righteous in the sight of God. We get so impressed, even those of us who name the name of Christ, with the things that we've done religiously. I'm reminded of when Jesus walked out into Jerusalem and the disciples began to point to the architecture of the temple in Matthew 23. And, Lord, look at these buildings. Look at the gold. Look at the woodwork. Look at the stonework. All of the things of these buildings. And Jesus tells them, not one stone here will be left standing that shall not be thrown down. They were impressed with the architecture of the temple. Just like they, so many times, just like we are impressed with the things that we do. But when it comes to salvation and you're standing before God, understand, as we will see today from the law, God's standard is so perfect and we are so flawed that there is no way possible for us to establish our own righteousness by the things that we do. And so to answer that question very briefly, as we'll expand on today, are you a good person the best, most spiritual, most religious person that we might ever come across would have to answer that question in and of themselves, no, I'm not a good person. Without Christ, which is to get ahead of myself, I'm not a good person. I'm a wretched, wretched man. What did Paul say of himself in Romans chapter 7? A wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body? Of this death. Today in America, we are inundated with what I've referred to before, and it's not a term that I invented, but this therapeutic moral deism. We have a code of American morality that we think is what God would have us to do that might or might not be based upon His Word, and we think somewhere there is a God who tells us what to do and is a benevolent grandfather figure that if you're bad enough like Hitler or Genghis Khan, He might send you to hell at the end of time if there is such a place. We really don't know, but the Word of God is very clear on man's righteousness and his immorality, his sinfulness, and God's righteous standard, and that's really what we want to consider with you today. And so there are three basic points that we want to share with you today as we think about the righteous standard of God, and we'll develop all of these thoughts before you. Number one, where has God revealed his righteousness to us? How do you know what right and wrong is? Because that's what society says. If you've ever taken a class in, on the college level on sociology, you know that 
they will tell you, sociologists, that whatever the society deems is moral or immoral, that is moral or immoral. And because of that, you have civilizations on the planet today that believe it's all right for a man to own his wife and to hurt his wife, maybe execute his children in an honor killing because they broke one of their societal standards, maybe throw people off buildings because they disagree with their lifestyle, a lifestyle that the Bible does condemn. But that exists because men have their own standard according to what society deems is right and wrong. Where has God revealed his righteous standard to us? We'll see in a minute. Number two, what that says about us, God's righteous standard being what it is and us being what we are, what does this say about us? And then lastly, as we conclude today, where do we find true righteousness for us? If I am what I am and God's standard is what it is, where do I find real, true righteousness that justifies me, a sinner, in the sight of a holy and a righteous God. Now, as we entitled our message this morning, Our Schoolmaster, you probably imagined that we were going to turn to the book of Galatians chapter 3 if you're a Bible reader. That's a very famous statement that you find in Galatians chapter 3. I could spend, preachers could spend weeks, yea, months preaching through the book of Galatians, and we could spend the entirety of today's message never leaving Galatians chapter 3, but there's simply the statement, our schoolmaster, that I want to grab out of that and use it as a foundation for what we share with you today. Now, we'll begin in Galatians 3.22. The Scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Now, there's a lot of things that you can unpack from this statement. There's a lot of things that Paul is talking about. We cannot establish our own righteousness by the keeping of the law, and we are justified in our consciences by faith. We are declared to be righteous by faith. And so if you believe in Christ, there's no works that you need to do to prove to yourself that you are indeed a righteous person. The faith that is of Christ testifies of that. Because if you have this faith, it is of Christ, faith being of him, you have it of him because you are born of him. Faith is a fruit of the Spirit. But before faith came, we were kept under the law. Now, so much more you could say about that. I'll put it in very brief. Paul here is not only speaking about personal faith that is of Christ, but also what you might refer to as dispensations of time. And as he talks about before faith came, he has reference to prior to the first advent of Christ when the worshipers of Jehovah were under the first covenant. Now I told you there's hours of things that we could say in these few verses, and we're going to just briefly mention them and move on to the statement we want. I'm going to try not to be long-winded today. Before faith came... That is to say, before the coming of Christ, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, this is our point for being here, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. The law then was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. 
schoolmaster, they're having reference to the sort of a tutor that a student would have in their education in Paul's day. And certainly growing up in a prominent family in Judea, a Roman citizen, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee who grew up at the feet of Gamaliel, the greatest Jewish scholar of the day, Paul certainly had many schoolmasters, one of them being Gamaliel, many tutors, people who taught him and trained him. The word schoolmaster in the Greek language is actually still a Greek word today. You'd be surprised to know that probably 80% of the words that you find in the Greek New Testament are still used by Greek speakers today. It's amazing how when the Word of God comes to a people in a language, the Word of God freezes that language in just about the same condition that it was in when God gave His Word in a language. For instance, in the English language, we have Old English that none of us could recognize, speak, or read. You have Middle English, which maybe some of you could speak some of or read. And then you have Modern English, which began at the end of the 1500s, which is none other than what our KJVs are written in. This is not Old English, but it has E-T-H and ye and, and thou and thee. Oh, no, that's modern English, but those are singular and plural pronouns in modern English. It's argued by English scholars and Bible scholars alike that the King James Bible froze the English language in the English form of the day because from that time forward, what have men done hours each week? They've read this book. It's interesting to know that the Greek word here in Galatians chapter 3 is the same Greek word for educator or pedagogue today. If you go to Google Translate and type in educator or pedagogue, the Greek word that it's going to give you is the same Greek word here that Paul uses, but it has reference to a schoolmaster, a tutor, a teacher, an educator, a pedagogue, one who teaches children. How was the law of God a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ? What was the purpose of the law? Now, the law certainly gave the children of Israel an excellent civil societal structure. And I believe, and I believe Scripture would attest to this, that it was the most perfect form of government that the world has ever known. And our laws in our country are based in part on the law that God gave the children of Israel. Now, there are many parts of the law that should never be implemented today because they were for that group of people at that time. God does not want the United States of America today to build a tabernacle or a temple and bring animals to it and sacrifice to him through it. Because he sent Christ into the world and his kingdom is not of this world, there are parts of the law that we understand that is no more, that has been done away with through Christ. But it was an excellent form of civil government. There were laws about all sorts of things and it was perfect, it was wonderful, it was beautiful. The New Testament is superior to the Old Testament, but as you read in Hebrews chapter 8, for finding fault with them, he taketh away the first that he might establish the second. Never think for a moment that there was something wrong with the Old Testament simply because God took it away. It had its purpose, and if there was a flaw, the flaw was us. But the purpose of law, of the law, aside from civil structure and order, listen to me, was to point to Christ. The purpose of the Old Testament was to point to Christ. Men usually like to make little 
snide remarks and insults about books like Leviticus. Oh, he's reading Leviticus. Oh, it's so boring. Let me tell you, all of those laws on sacrificing animals were pointing to the sacrifice of your Savior for your sin. And so the laws about the priesthood and all the things that they had to wear, the things that they had to do, the laws about the house of God and the temple of God, all of that had a purpose to point to the Lord Jesus Christ as our schoolmaster. Now, I want to share with you a few ways, just in brief, laying groundwork to get to Matthew chapter 5. Number one, the purpose of the law was to point to Christ through the types and shadows and prophecies contained in the law. What is a type or a shadow? Typology, interestingly enough, types and shadows, way that the Old Testament ways, the Old Testament foreshadowed and pointed to Christ is something that preachers have observed all the way back into the first century. And if you look into the writings of men such as Justin Martyr and other early, early church teachers and preachers, you find types of Christ being something that they richly focused on all the way back in the second century, the 100s right after the time of the apostles. They recognized, they dug into the Old Testament and they recognized that what we find in the law isn't merely some dry lesson about putting to death a lamb, but it was pointing to the Lamb of God that was slain, whose blood was shed for us and applied for us by our high priest, which is who? The Lord Jesus Christ. And so through types and shadows and prophecies, Christ was pointed to in the law. When a lamb was slaughtered, it was pointing to the death of Christ. The fact that the lamb had to be the first of the flock showed that Christ would be the only begotten of the Father. The fact that the lambs that were offered to God had to be without spot and without blemish shared the sinless nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. The law pointed to Christ. And so when you read that law, understand you're not merely reading about a bull or a goat or a sheep or a bird that was offered. You're reading little glimpses into the death of the Lord Jesus on your behalf. Number two, the law revealed God's righteous standard. If you've ever read it, one of the things that you come away with very quickly is how harsh the law seems to be. For reference, we just finished a series on the Christian home and parenting and being a husband and being a wife, and you notice that If there's a child, a teenager, that is lawless and rebellious, and that doesn't mean simply a a mouthy child, but a child that's getting into a lot of trouble. You know what you would do with the child that's getting into a lot of trouble? If you refuse to listen, you take him into the streets and you stone him, and you think, that's harsh, that's mean. But understand, God is communicating His righteous standard to us. Honoring your father and your mother is a part of the Ten Commandments, the moral code, if you will, that God gave in His law. And so to not honor father and mother is to sin. To sin is to earn what? Death. Sin results in death. And so God communicates through the severity of punishment His righteous standard, which as we'll see today, is none other than, no less than perfection. God's righteous standard is perfection. And it shows us, number three, the severity of sin by the punishments that you see when God gives a law. When we look at that, it's not harsh. It's not barbaric. We think that it is because we are fallen. Sin is severe. And when you see society become lawless and you see men reject the standards of God and 
begin to do whatever they want to do, the next thing you know, violence begins to permeate that society because sin left unchecked, well, it tailspins into the most heinous of behaviors because men are carnal and depraved. Now, to give you a glimpse into the conclusion of today's message, if you look into the law and you see what we are through the standards of God's Word and the penalties that we deserve, that God Himself said that we deserve, it leaves us looking for a righteousness other than our own. I find great comfort in the fact that the same law that condemns our iniquity and judges us worthy of death also pointed to the death of the Lord Jesus by way of the sacrifice of the animals. It's like God is tempering this call for justice against our iniquity with this promise of the Messiah who would come and save us from our sins. Let's turn to the book of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is something that we're so very familiar with, a place in God's Word that we're acquainted with. And as I was reflecting on this message that I've had on my heart for a period of months to deliver to you today, I began to view the progression of Matthew chapter 5 in a different light. God meant what He meant. And Christ meant what he said when he says it. But there's a flow of the context that was not as clear to me until my recent studies of this passage. And I hope that it's a light bulb that goes off in your head today. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, and just to give you a little bit of context here, Jesus is preaching his first sermon recorded in the book of Matthew. It's referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. He begins it with a series of blessings that we refer to as the Beatitudes. This is about God's righteous standard, and he concludes this by speaking about the priority of the kingdom of heaven, God's providential care of us, and he ends it by warning against the false teachers who would bring destruction to his people as they live in this world. Jesus takes this group of disciples who follow him. He sits down in the grass on a hillside in the mount, and he begins to preach. He would deliver a rendition of this message in the book of Luke that's referred to as the Sermon on the Plains because unlike the Sermon on the Mount, it was delivered, guess where? In the plains. He said, that sounds like a contradiction. No, he preached the same sermon in more than one place. Here's the glorious thing about this. If you're preaching the truth... The truth never changes. You don't have to invent new things. I'm scared to death of inventing new things. Why do we call ourselves primitive Baptists? Because we don't want new things. We can have a new building. We can have new seat covers. We can have a new air conditioner. We can have a new look to the kitchen. But as far as doctrine and practice, if God is eternal and His truth is an extension, an expression of Him, and Christ was truth personified the way the truth and the life... There is never new truth for you and I to believe. And so we've spent the last 2,000 years preaching the same thing to the glory and praise of God and the edification of God's children. Jesus taught the same principles over and over and over. 
By the way, you and I can teach the same principles over and over and over and never really get the full scope of everything that God intended. I'm an example of that. Here we are looking at a message that new light on an old text was given to me. And it's not new to anybody. It's not new to Scripture. But to me, I understood a piece of it a little more clearly, the flow of the context of this chapter. Jesus says in verse 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. What is the context of Jesus' thought? The law and the prophets. That baby ain't bothering me. Y'all, amen. We can have several babies in here making noise. I love babies in here. We haven't had babies in here in like four years. Right? In about four years? Okay. Babies in here in four years. I want more babies in here. Hint. So, what's the context of this statement? Think not that I am come to destroy the what? The law or the prophets. One of the accusations against the apostles and against Christ was that they were rebellious renegades who taught against Moses. And Jesus tells you, I am not come to destroy the law. Now, there's a lot of people in the world today who will quote that statement and put a period where Jesus puts a comma. Now, I know it was written in Greek, and he spoke it either in Greek or in Aramaic, and there was no comma in that statement. All right, sure. But there's no period. There's no end of a statement there. It doesn't end with think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. Why would men want to stop the sentence right there? Because they want to place you back under the law. We're not under the law. We're not under the law. Jesus says, I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. I cannot tell you the number of times that false teachers in my hearing on videos and even in person have stopped the sentence before it ends. Jesus did not come to destroy the law He came to fulfill the law. We're going to come back to that statement in just a moment. The word destroy means to cut off prematurely, to destroy it, to break it. Think not that I'm come to destroy the law. I'm not come to destroy, but to what? Fulfill. The word fulfill means to bring to a proper conclusion. And so have our minds Establish with that fact today. Jesus did not come to destroy it, to cut it off prematurely. He came to fulfill it, to bring it to its proper conclusion. Put that in the back of your mind and leave it there as we continue our thoughts today. Because it's going to be the most important statement that I'm going to make to you. For verily I say unto you, truly I tell you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven." Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law. That expression, till heaven and earth pass, is a figure of speech. It is an idiom. 
And it means, in essence, that it is easier for the world to end than for what he was talking about to come to be. And in fact, he says that in other places. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. By the way, by the way, if any so-called Bible teacher or scholar attempts to convince you that the original readings of the Word of God have been lost to us and that we cannot truly know for sure what the Word of God says to a jot and a tittle, they are outside the teaching of Scripture on this issue. Because the Word of God will not disappear from this place. Heaven and earth shall pass it's easier for heaven and earth to pass than for His Word to fail or to disappear, to be destroyed, to go away. God's promise is that His Word will be preserved. Sometimes when you say that, so-called modern scholars tell you that you are viewing the Word of God through theology, not empirical evidence. Last time I checked, we're called to view the Word of God and the church and salvation, and your identity, and our Savior's identity, theologically. Because we are a church. You want to start talking about empirical evidence, and science, and this and that, the next thing you know, you're going to try to convince me that we evolved from an ape that evolved from an amoeba. Okay, sorry. Sorry, we're not going there. This is a matter of faith. By faith we believe that the world's refrained by the Word of God, and by faith we believe that He has perpetuated His church until now. By faith we believe that His Word is here today, preserved by Him, as writers of old would say, through His singular care and providence, and we make no apologies for that. It's a matter of faith. This is, after all, a faith. But Jesus says that it would be easier for heaven and earth to pass than for one jot or tittle to pass from the law. He came to fulfill it to a jot and a tittle. Those are the smallest marks of punctuation in that day. Jesus then makes a statement that is staggering, that is troubling, and I want you to listen to it. Because if you... Don't understand. If you don't understand the first statement that we looked at from Matthew 5, this will haunt you as you lay down to sleep at night. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, ye shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless I am more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees, I won't enter into the kingdom of heaven? Now remember in Matthew 4.17, when Jesus began his ministry, he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is what? At hand. And so the kingdom is at hand in the world today. At hand means present. And it has reference to the New Testament church, according to the book of Hebrews. But we also understand that there's a final phase of this kingdom when the king and every citizen of the kingdom shall be gathered together in the end of time when he delivers up the kingdom forevermore. And so this kingdom has a present phase, but this kingdom also has a future final phase. 
And I'm going to tell you that unless our righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, whether we're talking about this phase or the phase to come, we shall in no wise enter in. And that ought to scare you to death if you don't know where I'm going with this. That is staggering. Imagine being in the presence of Jesus as he taught those words to his disciples. Unless you are more righteous than the scribes, the keepers, the writers, and the expositors of God's law in the synagogues and at the temple. The people who had been given the charge of recording the law, meticulously reproducing the law and teaching the law. I've got to be more righteous than them. What is that alluding to? They're not righteous enough to enter into the kingdom. The Pharisees. Phariseeism was invented as a way to preserve God's true worship and His truth. You think about that. The preservers of true worship. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom. You mean to tell me that the Pharisees, and we look at that word in a negative way today. It wasn't a pejorative in that day. It wasn't an insult in that day. It wasn't referring to someone who thought they were holy, who was really just judgmental in that day. They were the who's who of religious Jews in the first day. They were the conservatives. We would look at the Pharisee and put them on equal footing as the conservative evangelicals of America today. The most fundamental of fundamentals, or fundamentalists, I should say. They were the people that you would look at in that day and you would say, those are the religious elite. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceed the righteousness of those people, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. That ought to jar us. If I'm trusting in what I know, the scribes, or what I do, the Pharisees, I ought to be terrified by that statement. Now remember, the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Let's begin looking at some of the things that Jesus further says in this chapter. Follow the flow of the context. Think not that I'm come to destroy. No, I've come to fulfill. Except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you've got no chance of being in the kingdom. Ye have heard, then Jesus continues, that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. Now, by the way, so many times liberal theologians and preachers take this and they say, Jesus is saying he doesn't agree with the law of Moses, and to that I scream heresy. Jesus doesn't agree with the law of Moses? What sort of insane idea is that? He just told you he came not to destroy, but to fulfill to a jot and tittle. How then is he disagreeing with Moses? Jesus' intent here is not to disagree with the law. Jesus' intent is to disagree with the interpreters of the law. How so? God's intended purpose of the law 
His standard that he was intending to communicate through the law is more restrictive, more perfect, more demanding than even the scribes or Pharisees recognized. And if I think that I am going to, by the things that I do, earn my way to the presence of God, I have another thing coming. You've heard that it's said, thou shalt not kill. Now that comes from the law. It comes from the Ten Commandments. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, the intent of the law, Jesus explains, that whosoever is angry at his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whosoever shall say to his brother, Reka, shall be in danger of the council. Whosoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. And so Jesus goes on to tell them, if you've brought a gift to the altar and you've done something to offend one of your brothers, you need to leave it there and go your way and be reconciled before you even come and offer your gift. Jesus would say in other places that if we hate someone without cause then we've committed murder already in our heart. Now, I'm sure when I asked the average American on the street, are you a good person? Well, I've never killed anybody. Well, according to the righteous standard of God, if you have hated people or had a grudge against someone for no reason, you are guilty. You are guilty of God's law against murder, which we consider to be the worst crime a person can commit. I am guilty of murder. That ought to scare you to death. Just keep listening. What else does Jesus say in this chapter as he expands upon the law and his intent with it and their understanding of it? How lenient they were with themselves, though at many times they were so harsh with others. Verse 27, statements on sexual immorality. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And they would say, Well, I've never done that. I've never been physically unfaithful to my spouse. But I say unto you, Whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. If I have ever, or if you have ever, looked at a person and lusted after them, you are guilty of adultery and unworthy to stand in the presence of God by your own works. Every single one of us are guilty. We are condemned adulterers by the standard of God's law. Again, Jesus' words in this passage stagger us. They astonish us. He comes to the conclusion of this teaching and he taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. Look at verse 28 of Matthew chapter 7. As he came to the end of these sayings, people were astonished at his teaching. What? You mean what? You mean my righteousness has to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees? And if I've ever looked at a person with lust in my heart, I'm guilty of adultery and unable to stand before the presence of a holy God in and of myself? What hope do I have then? 
remember Jesus' words to the rich young ruler, and you find that he takes him through this exact formula. With men, it is impossible. But not with God. With God, all things are possible. Oh, he continues. Comments on the way that we use our words. Again, you've heard that it's been said of them of old time, that shall not forswear thyself, but shall perform unto the Lord thine oath. I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, it's God's throne, neither by the earth, it's God's footstool, neither by Jerusalem, it's the city of the great king. What is he talking about? Our words. You have words in the law, in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not bear false witness. Have you ever told a lie? I'm talking about as a three-year-old when your parent says, did you do that? No, I didn't do that. I saw you do that. I've got it on camera. You did that. I didn't do that. Guess what that makes you? Makes you a liar. You know the book of Revelation says liars have their part in the lake of fire? One lie is all it takes for a man to be separated from the presence of God for eternity in the lake of fire. Let me tell you, that's enough to make us tremble at the thought of who we are in the sight of God and what we deserve according to His righteous standard. This is why, by the way, friends, the law or the gospel is what? It's good news. It's good news. How can my righteousness be so perfect that it exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees that I can stand before a holy God, whether here or in the world to come? Can you live that standard? The answer to that question is universally, completely, no. Based upon our actions, adhering to commands and laws, rules, regulations, you and I, have absolutely no hope of standing before God, seeing Him in glory, and escaping His eternal, everlasting wrath. Would that be a terrible place to end a sermon? So what then? What's the solution? Remember... Verse 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. He lived a life that you and I could not live, and he suffered the penalty of the law upon the cross of Calvary for you. And I trust for me. When the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross of Calvary hung there, suspended between heaven and earth, think of the man who hung there. 
He was the God-man. He was the Word made flesh, the second person of the Trinity, God's eternal Son in human form, conceived of the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin named Mary, born into this world without the nature of sin and death that we inherited from Adam as the last Adam, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15. He came into this world and he kept every single law that God gave in his word. He honored God. He loved God. He prayed to God. He submitted to God. When he came to be baptized of John the Baptist, John the Baptist said, I have need to be baptized of thee, and you want to be baptized of me? And Jesus tells him, suffer it to be so, for it behooves us, it becomes us to what? To fulfill all righteousness. Did Jesus need to be baptized? Not because of himself, but I want you to understand that every good thing that a man must do, Christ did for you. And as he hung upon the cross of Calvary, a perfect man, never having sinned, but having kept the law of God completely, perfectly to a jot and a tittle, died for you. He nailed the handwriting of ordinances that was against you to his tree. And as he gave up the ghost, he left that there. He died for your sins. When the Lord Jesus said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. He suffered the penalty that the law demanded. The wrath of God having been poured out upon him, as you know, my favorite verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, to paraphrase it, he that knew no sin, he that knew no sin was made to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ suffered every wrath that we deserved. He satisfied the Father's wrath. It pleased the Father to bruise him. That is to say, it appeased his righteous indignation against us. And because of the death of Christ on the cross, we have a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes. It exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. It is the righteousness of of Christ, and he gave it to us as he died for us upon the tree. Now, you might ask the question, how do I know if I'm one of these people for whom Jesus died? Isn't that the most important question that you could ever ask yourself? That's what the book of Galatians is all about, and we know that. How? By faith. It justifies us. It declares us righteous. That's what the word justify means in our consciences. And so, trembling sinner, if you believe, that declares that you are his child. But I want to back up and simply read through the first passages of Matthew chapter 5. What an amazing portion of God's word. It tears down our self-justification 
It tears down our self-righteousness. It declares that we are all condemned by our own actions in and of ourselves. And at the same time, it promises not only what Jesus has done and will do for us, but it grants us great assurances. Jesus, seeing the multitudes, went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Listen to me after hearing everything you just heard. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What a contradiction someone might think if they don't understand. My righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees to enter into the kingdom. And yet at the same time, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is this telling me? To stand before God, we have to have a righteousness that is greater than our own. We have been given the righteousness of Christ. How do I know if I'm a person to whom the righteousness of Christ has been given through regeneration? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This isn't talking about people with physical poverty have a blessing of their soul. It's saying if you have poverty of soul, if you feel yourself to be poor in the sight of a holy God, then God has promised unto you his kingdom, not because you have that, but because he died for you. Blessed are they that mourn over what? Their sinfulness. Do you mourn over your sin when you look at yourself through the perfect standard of the law of God? I do. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. How? Because you know that even though you don't deserve it, because you have violated his righteous law, he died for you, and he gave you his righteousness. And if he gave you his righteousness, the very righteousness of Christ, the Son of God, is yours. And you'll be a joint heir with him because, not because of what you've done, but because of what he did. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, the humble. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Filled. Open my mouth and the south came out. Filled. <laughs> they shall be filled with what? Righteousness. When you understand that your righteousnesses are as filthy rags and Christ has given you his righteousness and you can feast upon that in the gospel, oh, when you open your mouth to sing praises unto him in worship, what a filling with the Holy Spirit occurs. Friends, this is why the gospel is such good news. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets which were before you. Ye who feel yourself to be such are the salt of the earth, the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill that cannot be hid. I hope 
that as we heard this message, that to you, you received it as if it was the first time you heard it. I hope that as you heard God's righteous standard, that you trembled understanding what we are by nature. But as we heard about what Christ has done for us, I hope that your heart was comforted. And I hope as you heard Jesus' description of his trembling little children at the early part of Matthew chapter 5, that you found common ground with them. You felt to be them. If you're one who feels yourself to be that way, and you have a hope in Christ, you say, I believe in Him. I know that my only chance to stand before God is through His Son. Then what we would bid you to do is to confess Him before men, to be baptized in His name, and to follow Him as a disciple all the days of your life.